Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, I'm the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the podcast is simple, we want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. The main focus of the podcast is to increase knowledge of teachers and schools, but the podcast supports all professionals working with children and young people with SEND, and it benefits parents and carers of all children. This week, my guest is Jyoti Manuel, the founder and director of Special Yoga. She has been teaching yoga since 1989 and has been working with children with SEND for over 20 years. This week, we're discussing using yoga to support pupils with autism. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you are a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, we can help. Did you know you can also use B Squared assessment software for more than just your pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing how schools can support autism with special yoga. My guest this week is Jyoti Manuel, the founder and director of Special Yoga. She has been teaching yoga since 1989 and set up Special Yoga 20 years ago to support pupils with SEND. She works with local education authorities, the NHS schools, paediatric professionals, and parents and carers. Welcome to the show, Jyoti. Thank you. It's very lovely to be here and be invited back again. Oh, you are very much welcome. So we have discussed yoga on a previous podcast and covered a number of misconceptions around yoga. Leotards are not required. But how can yoga support someone with autism? So we know that autism is an enormous spectrum. And we know that every person or child with autistic person or person with autism may be presenting differently and may have different modes of behavior, anxiety, challenges, and so on and so forth. So I can only do it from a very generalized place. But yeah. what, we, what we've seen over many years of working with autistic children is from those that are highly impacted to those that are, are less impacted by, by their autism is that there's an anxiety that, that seems to be a constant undercurrent. And the other piece that I've seen a lot is a kind of disconnect from themselves because they are either uncomfortable in their bodies or I'm, I'm not quite sure why, why that is, but there's definitely a disconnect. And so what we are able to do with the yoga is, from an anxiety perspective, is reduce the anxiety. Because when we can help the child to connect to their body a little bit more, to understand how to use their breathing well so that they can regulate themselves, that allows them some mastery over the levels of anxiety that they experience. And I think that when they, certainly from what I've seen over the years of doing this work, is that when they are more connected to themselves and they grow older 
and they start to understand the varying boundaries under which the situations would upset them. They then have more control over choices because they're more aware. So I think that the yoga helps to bring more regulation to the nervous system to calm down. When we calm down, we're then more able to make sensible choices to understand things better because the brain is in a, a more optimum state for understanding and for learning and for function. So on a very generalized basis, that's one of the pieces why I think the yoga works for autistic children. And then you've got the piece of disconnect. So I've noticed that oftentimes children with autism have little sense of where they are in space. So they knock into things, they fall over. And sometimes it's a sensory issue because they're overwhelmed and their sensory system is overwhelmed. And when your sensory system is overwhelmed, again, that creates anxiety. And when we are able through the yoga practices to calm and regulate the nervous system, that also impacts the sensory system that takes us out of red alert. And the sensory system is much more regulated and balanced when we're not in red alert. Yeah. So that disconnect is quite a common thing. And sometimes that disconnect from the body, but also from their own emotions as well. So they, I've got a nephew who will, if you show him any emoji, he'll tell you happy, sad, any fate, he'll tell you, but he doesn't recognize how that feels within him. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we, what we work towards is having the child build a, a different relationship with themselves so that they're more able to recognize their feelings so they're not so that they become less reactive right so even if it's yeah. a sensation you don't always have to put language to it so if we take the assumption which i believe that probably 80% of communication is in fact nonverbal there are other ways that a child could tell you or communicate how they're feeling right because sometimes language isn't accessible in a way that a neurotypical person may understand it. There's, there's that, you know, disconnecting communication and understanding. So when a child is able to feel a sensation in their body that they know is uncomfortable and they know is then going to create a reaction in them, once they understand that sensation or they know the sensation, they understand it, they know the sensation, then they're able to find ways to not have to go down that rabbit hole of a meltdown or whatever behavior pattern is is not helpful for them. Yeah, because they're able to recognize it and go, ah, oh, I know where this is going to go. Correct. And it's not necessarily even a, a mental thought process. It could be a sensation process. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's understanding, it's having that connection back to yourself that allows you to recognize or to pull, to draw on techniques which usually would be breathing or perhaps a massage point in your hands or something like that that's easily and fast accessible to regulate yourself yeah that thing i i, there are, I know there are people who they will say they talk about the red zone red orange and green zone yeah and they will know i'm in the green zone i'm in the green zone what zone are you in i don't know mm-hmm. and that's because they, they, they know they're not in the green zone they're going this isn't feeling right, but they can't identify what they are feeling. Mm-hmm. And exploring that and helping going, okay, so I've got that, okay, I can recognise that. And recognising that and knowing that actually how they're, and yeah, linking the feeling to maybe their breathing and other things to work out which zone they're in and go, okay, 
I'm feeling this, I notice this, I'm in the orange zone. And then being able to identify that means you then can go, right, how do I get back to the green zone? But it's that identification and understanding where you are. You need that first, don't you? I think so. I mean, I, I can't see how you can regulate without knowing. You're not regular, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because sometimes we've had children with with a kind of autistic and high arousal, which could be ADHD, calming down for the first time or settling, really settled and still. And then they jump out of it because it's unfamiliar. Yes. And so you need to identify for them, wow, that was amazing that you found that stillness. So oftentimes the first port of call is to help the child to identify a different state and make it okay for them because it's unfamiliar. Yes. Yeah. I I can imagine that. Yeah. If you're constantly on the go and constantly moving and to find, actually to find stillness and find out how that feels could be quite odd. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's normalizing a different experience could be one way as well. Yeah. That's about, yeah, because you only know what you know. It's a phrase we always use on this. And if you're always moving and you've never actually been still because you've not been able to self-regulate to allow you to be still, it will be a very alien feeling. Right. Yeah, lots of other people feel it all the time. But for <laughs> you, that could be the first time you felt that. I've witnessed that many, many times. Wow. But it's very interesting. So in order to help the child connect to their breath, it might be that you say to them, wow, you just took a beautiful breath. So then there's a beginning of an identification that that's what's happened. Yeah. So it's helping to name these moments. Oh, you look really peaceful right now, even if it's only for a brief second. So you start to identify that experience and then they're more able to connect with it and actually perhaps build towards enjoying it and appreciating it. Yeah. What I find, I I find lots of fun about doing this podcast is there are times I've felt things and gone, always feels nice. And I've, that's as much as I've known. I like this, but I've no idea what it was, how I got there, or anything. Mm-hmm. And as I do some of the podcasts, I learn about mindfulness and I learn about things. It's like, ah, so what I did then, and I can kind of work out actually, this is what I'd done. I somehow found this. I knew it felt nice. Yeah, it might be just feeling calm or something, but I had no idea how I got there or why it felt nice. Mm-hmm. And then learning, actually, well, actually, what you probably did is you did this, this, this. They go, were you here? And I'm going, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was on a, I was on a holiday away from work, lying on a hillside. I could hear the sea. It was almost like all the ingredients you need to be ultra relaxed. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, this feels nice. It's like, yeah, you probably were just in this sort of zone. But at the time, I couldn't tell you what, how I got there. But it's, it's like I found myself somewhere and – doing some of the podcasts and talking about self-regulation and all that sort of stuff has helped me see that's where I was and this is how you get back there. Good. That's nice. Nice that you get to do this, huh? <laughs> it is. It is really, it's really interesting just learning lots of different things and hearing the same things. But what often comes out from all the things is always the same source of themes from every person. It's literally you could almost overlap certain things that you, you do it through your yoga and all of this, but something else someone else does, it's like you're doing the same thing from a very different angle or it could be just a slightly different angle. Mm-hmm. But the logic, the science, the outcomes are the same. And it is the same and it just shows you that, okay, so lots of people are finding the exact same things working and we're still ignoring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, so I think one of the things also that's interesting for me about the yoga and autism and education is that one of the biggest challenges I think for teachers, um, I hear this a lot, is, is behavior. And so I think that there's two sides to that. One is regulating the adults, which we talked about this about in the other podcast, and how yeah. important that is to be able to listen deeply to regulate yourself. That listening deeply comes from your ability to be regulated. And when you're really regulated, then you're creating a circle of safety. And oftentimes, I think the behaviors of the children are quite triggering, quite challenging, quite hard yeah. work. And so the teachers are exhausted. And I understand that completely. But if the teachers can learn how to nourish themselves and, and, and regulate themselves and have techniques in the moment that they can use to calm themselves down when they begin to feel charged because the scenario out there is charged, then they can actually just through their own state help to regulate the external. Yes. And there is a thing where you go, okay, so I've got this pupil in my class now. Okay, they might kick off. You're almost expecting them to, and you're already building up your response. But then you're actually giving that child an invitation to do exactly that. Yes, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Unquestionably. And I've seen that over and over again as well. So when the teachers are able to feel calm and nourished for themselves, they're then able to change their, their thought processes so yep. that they can stop those invitations. <laughs> you know? Yes. You know? That's the thing is, and I'm sure we've all experienced it, where someone's annoyed you or you're expecting them to, and you just your tone has changed when you deal with them. And it's almost like you're subconsciously po- you're poking them. Of course. You're subconsciously poking them because you want them to react because that's what you're expecting. Correct. So I think the state of the adult is really important. And I think teachers need to be need to take care of themselves. I mean, you, they've chosen a profession that's a hugely caring profession. And I think what isn't really taken on board enough is that that actually when we take care of ourselves, which isn't selfish, it actually allows us to give from a greater big pot. You know, if you can imagine, you you know, you fill yourself up since so you have so much to give, you're going to be so much more useful than when you're empty and you have nothing to give really. And you think you do, but you don't really. Yes. I like whenever you do first aid training, the first thing they do is don't make two casualties. Make sure it's safe before you go and help that person. Like, don't go out in the middle of the motorway and get hit. You have to make it safe for you first. And mm-hmm. I think the same is for, same for mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is if you're not in a good place, you're not going to be as effective as helping that person who's also not going to be good. You need to be grounded. You need to be definitely self-regulating as a minimum, but you need to be able in a position to take some of that burden on and support that person without impacting that situation negatively. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that what yoga can do in, in an educational setting is support the teachers. Again, the teachers don't need to be doing lots of wearing a leotard, as you, as you mentioned several times before, <laughs> and converting themselves into pretzels. They just need to learn how to breathe and ground themselves and just take care of their hearts and their bodies a little bit better. And, and actually understand that that's, not, that's a good thing to do, not a selfish thing to do, not a bad thing to do, or I haven't got time for me. Really? Because we can't give from an empty pot. We can't. And I think yep. that we're not culturally, we haven't culturally been brought up to take care of ourselves. And I think that that whole thing needs to shift in the caring professions, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a teacher, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's on burnout right now. And if we can regulate and calm the adults 
around the children, the children are going to be in better shape. I mean, they just Definitely. are. And then you can use the same techniques and be more effective in helping the children to regulate themselves. I don't believe that you can help a child to regulate if you're not regulated. No. But I think it's interesting is we weren't taught all of these skills when we grew up, but we are kind of like the first generation where in a family, both parents have full-time jobs. Most families mm -hmm. are both parents working mm -hmm. or you have only a single parent or things like that. So you don't have a person at home whose basically job is to look after you mm -hmm. where that is their own thing. You are part of their life. Mm -hmm. And in reality, they have to pay bills. Yep. And so we've not, we're just not ready for the situation we're all in. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we are in it and we have to manage it better because yes. getting stressed out and anxious doesn't pay your bills. It doesn't. I mean, I have to pay my bills too. I'm a single parent. I've raised my two kids on my own. Wow. And there have been times when I wondered where, whether I could put food on the table at the end of the month. But the reality is somehow or another, it always, I always did, but I had to calm myself down. Yeah. That's the thing is with everything on your plate, with all of that piled up, it's most important to be regulated. Absolutely. So you can really make the right decisions you have to and make really difficult decisions and work out okay this is a horrible thing but this is actually the best we can do and really think about those decisions not just go yeah i'm just going to go do that it's you've got to make when you're up against it that's when you have to make the best decisions and you can't make best decisions when you're in high levels of stress and anxiety no definitely not so in one of your notes, you sent me, you have the word sensory diet. And as I said, <laughs> before we started recording, I'm going to touch on this because when I heard the term sensory diet, what I thought it we were going to discuss on a previous podcast was not what we discussed. I literally, and this is a thing where I don't get embarrassed about saying these things anymore. I thought a sensory diet was literally the texture of things you eat. It could be. Sensory eating. It could be, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> that's not what everyone else means by it. I literally thought, what? I was talking about soup and then maybe having, yeah, that's not what sensory diet is. And if you're laughing at me, I'm sorry. If you, it was me going, I thought that the first time. Thank you. But it, it's sometimes we see a phrase and I just see the word diet, which makes me think eating, but that's not it. That's not what a sensory diet, what people mean. It's about controlling what we sense, isn't it? I think for me, it's about how we use different techniques that would fall under the yoga banner, if you want to call it that, yep. to support a very imbalanced sensory system. Okay. So you, you, you've got schools that do sensory circuits, for example, right? Yes. So we know that there are certain practices within the context of yoga that would give you proprioceptive feedback that would give you vestibular awareness that start to balance some of the, an interoception. So there are practice within the umbrella of yoga that isn't just about pretzels. You can use different practices and movements and connection back to your body that will give you the feedback in order to balance your sensory systems. So it's kind of making sure we're using all of those senses and being more aware of all of our senses? At some level, yeah. At, at some level, yeah. I mean, I think you get children on the, on the autistic spectrum who 
you know, are wearing headphones because they can't cope with the outside noise. And these are the children who's also, if you look at them, they'll be breathing really erratically. They'll probably be quite disconnected from their bodies because they're so really uncomfortable. And so we need to create some self-soothing techniques for them where we regulate their nervous systems, we calm their whole system down so that the over-stimulus of sound reduces. So we're moving it from that centre. Because a lot of time when we talk about the ear defenders, it's that emotional connection to that noise. It's an emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. It's I previously used the term choice, but it's not choice. It is, I cannot cope with this for other reasons, this noise. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is reducing that emotional state down, self-regulating. So actually that child is in a much better place that they could take those ear defenders off and hear that sound and not react. It's not always the case. It's not a, oh, if I just do some yoga, I can my child never. It's not that. It's it's a journey. It's totally a journey. We've had different responses. Sometimes it's taken kids months and months and months of doing yoga before they've been able to take their headphones off. And then sometimes they can only take them off for a little bit and then they need to put them back on again. And maybe the week after they need them on again or the day after they need them on again because, you know, something's happened and their sensory system is out again. So out of out of regulation, out of balance again. So it's just working gently with it. It depends how severe their sensory system is affected. Yeah, because I think is sometimes they need them in certain situations. Absolutely. So Absolutely. yeah, in that situation, fine. That situation, fine. That situation, no. And it is and that's the time when they're not regulated. Yeah, but even in the times when they need them, when when they do need them, they can still reduce the pain of why they need them yeah. by regulating their nervous systems. So once they start to understand that they have within them the capacity to regulate themselves and calm themselves then they will find all of those situations less difficult. I'm not saying they won't be difficult. I'm saying they'll be less difficult. So on the previous podcast, you talked about being connected to your body. And I suppose that's the thing is it's their understanding that there is, I'm going to say an element of control that might not be the correct thing. It's not like I can turn it on or off, but it's like, this is impacting me. And it's, it's a way that actually recognizing how that feels. Mm-hmm. And then changing it from how it feels to how you want it to be, so that regulating it. But if you're not, if you're unaware of, you have that control on of your body, you may feel that you can't do anything. I think that's absolutely correct, and I don't don't even know that there's conscious awareness around what you've just stated. Yeah. And, until you change it. Yes, that's the thing. Until you know you can, or you've experienced that you have somehow changed it, you might go. And it might take a while, but you'll sit there going, so it, how I perceive it, how it affects me, I have some level of control over. Mm-hmm. And it might be you can control it in some situations. It might be in certain situations you can have some control of it. It might be that it still impacts you. It might take longer for it to become cut. Or as you said, you can just reduce that level mm-hmm. of that pain you're feeling. Mm-hmm. So also in, in, in some of the sensory practices, you know, weight bearing gives you feedback up into the proprioceptive system to have you understand where you are in space. And so there are yoga positions, you know, simple ones, not pretzel ones, <laughs> and not ones that need leotard either, but that you can, 
you can easily wait there through your hands if you're, for example, on all fours. You can wait there through your hands and get that feedback. So that's where these are the different pathways of where yoga can be useful as a as a as a sensory diet to to nourish your sensory system as opposed to have it consistently imbalanced. Yeah. So just clarify. So I don't want to just I've learned not to just assume. So when you talk about sensory imbalance, you are talking about so when my when I'm I can only I can only explain it from my own experience. So yeah, that's fine. When I'm in high levels of overwhelm or anxiety or stress, there are certain smells that are totally intolerable for me. Okay. Okay. So that's one of my sensory systems, right? Your smell, sense of smell, is it? And my in fact, one of my daughters has that as well, and it literally will have her spiraling out of control. But if she regulates her nervous system, then that experience. Is more manageable. I don't like it, but it doesn't make me hysterical. Yeah. Okay. So in the same way, we, we my yoga center used to be near a train track, and frequently the autistic children would be running to the windows because they could hear a train. The train was three stations away. Now I couldn't hear that, but they could hear the train. Yeah. Okay. So their 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 hearing abilities are much more on alert or different to mine. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's fine with a train coming by, but it might not be okay with different sounds that have them feeling hysterical. Cool. So when you talk about imbalance, you're, you're talking about like your your sensitivity is just your sensitivity over. Is, yeah. You're just uh, uh, turned up to max. Correct. Correct. So what we want to do is to turn that down. I think I read these, I read these phrases a lot, and I sit there going, I don't always know what these phrases mean. So I've learned. I'm going to ask these days. I'm just going to ask. <laughs> and it, oh, I, I kind of go, it's this. I go, cool, it is that. It is kind of, sometimes I'm completely wrong, like sensory diet. I was completely wrong on that one. But yeah, so that sensory imbalance, it is not about balancing your senses. It is literally that, that's, that sense is imbalanced. It's over the top. It's hypersensitive. It's almost like turn the volume down. Yes. And, and the volume could be on, in smell. It could be in touch. It could be in sound. Because your senses are amazing. Sound is a really good one because your ears, their sensitivity adapts amazingly. So you'll go to a loud club and go somewhere loud and it's just sensitivity will go down and you'll be there. And then if you leave there five hours later, you kind of have that slight ringing in your noise. It just, it's just a noise and it's just your sensitivity is going back up. Everything's going on. But then you can be somewhere really quiet and you'll hear a, a, your tap dripping from three rooms away. And if you go into, I can't remember what it's called, but it begins with A, but it's one of these rooms where they've got rid of all the noise cancel. They're foam covered, no sound reflections. And if you lie in there for like an hour, you'll hear your own blood wow. go around your body. Wow. So that's how sensitive your ears can be. Mm-hmm. Now imagine you're stuck at that I can hear my blood go around my body level in everyday life. You're over, you would be in overwhelm most of the time. Yeah. And then you've got that idea of you're in, you're in, you're in a restaurant and you've got those restaurants where there's lots of two-seater tables next to each other and you're facing your partner or, your, or whoever you have dinner with and you're having that conversation. But to your left and to your right, it's another conversation. But your ears can magically 
filter out to I'm listening to that one person in front of me. Mm-hmm. But then you want to earwig. So you listen to a table three year tables across. They talk about something. And you can somehow magically listen to that. And you everything else is just a, a din, a noise in the background. But your ears can subconsciously really filter into specific noises. And again, if you don't have that ability, everything is at the same level. You are going to get that sensory overload. And you might not be able to control that, but you have a level of how much it impacts your emotions. Well, as soon as you get an overwhelm on any level, your autonomic nervous system is out of regulation. Yes. If you can help them regulate, it's going to help them stay calmer. You probably can't in that moment with the breathing do much about that sensory overload because it, it could be a sensory issue, but you can help them change how it impacts them. I think that's right. And if you think about schools and classrooms, they're noisy places. Yes. They're really noisy places, especially in, I mean, in, in mainstream, you've got too many people in too small a space, usually classrooms with too much visual chaos for somebody who's visually overwhelmed, too much noise, too many people too close to you. I mean, that's hell on wheels if your sensory system is out of regulation. Hell on wheels. And then, and then if you go out into the playground. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, people wonder why these children's behavior is so tricky. Because yes. they're just responding to overwhelm. Yes. And it, yeah, it is. You sit there and again, if you've got to really think about if I couldn't do that, if I couldn't filter this, or I think visual filtering is you are got somebody in front of you, you've got things behind, you can just choose to focus on that. And the same like a camera can focus on one person, everything else blurs the background. Your eyes do that, your ears do that. But if you couldn't, and I think, I think with autism, you are much more aware of things going on you could be you can notice much more things than everyone else so you're processing visual information whether you like it or not which is tiring absolutely so yeah that whole self-regulation becomes very important as you're just the day processing all that information coming in getting to the end of the day the pot will be empty and you're probably exhausted yes and then what happens is you run on overdrive and, and then behaviours really kick off because you're totally out of control. We all know it ourselves. There are days when you've got being long, busy days, often the first or last day of a holiday mm-hmm. when you have all the travel mm-hmm. and it's all new mm-hmm. and you're going somewhere new. So as a parent, you're stressed. And that's often when children misbehave. But have they really? That's the thing. I, I now look back and go, were they misbehaving or were they doing what they always do? But I just wasn't in a good place to respond because mm-hmm. I was worried about, are we getting the, is the flight going to be delayed? Are we, have we got to get the right coach? Where is it? Which, yeah, there's lots of things you're worrying about, which stops you being regulated mm-hmm. and impacts. You're also talking a little bit about transitioning up there, aren't you? Yes. And of course, that's another big issue in a classroom is transitioning from one activity to another. Yeah. And one of the things, the feedback that we got very, very early on when we started to bring this into classrooms and, and, and just work with autistic children, whether they're in a classroom or, or they came to our centre, was that, that when we started to work with their energy body and we kind of gave them movements that, that where they had limited movement, particularly in forward, move, forward bending, for example. So you're sitting with your legs out and you're just literally bringing your body forwards a lot of them got completely stuck, couldn't do it. And when we started to work with that, 
the feedback that we got was that that they were transitioning better. So if you think about, you know, your body in connection with all of this, if I can move forwards with ease in my body, then perhaps I can move forwards with transitioning with more ease. It sounds bonkers. It sounds that the fact I you can lean forward and move forward. It's, it's a thing. You sit there and go, and I'm going, but a part of me, all my experiences, I can kind of because when you're relaxed and you're sitting back, you don't want to put any effort in. Mm-hmm. But sitting forward is I'm doing something mode. Yeah. You don't lie back and do your hard work. You sit forward and you're doing something. It's an effort. So to me, if I'm lying back, I'm not putting any effort in. But if I'm leaning forward, that means I need to put effort in. So subconsciously, it makes sense as you think about it. I hadn't seen it from that perspective. So I had seen it more from the fact that we have in yoga, from a yoga perspective, we have seven energy centers. They're known as chakras. And the lower energy centers, are they all have an emotional as well as a physical and physiological response, right? So the lower energy chakras are about feeling safe in your body and about feeling connected to the earth and often the things that autistic people struggle with. So when you unblock the energetic blockage, which is how I perceive forward movement in yoga, you actually are opening up a different energy. I'm probably seeing it as I can't be bothered to get off the sofa and I'm lying at home watching a TV and my children going, can you come here, Dad? I'm seeing it as I've got it. I've got it. Oh, I can't be bothered to get up. I'm probably seeing it slightly differently. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. That's what I wanted to do. But I, it's interesting to hear different perspectives on it as well. But it is, yeah, because I I feel lying back, and I, but I've I've been in situations where I'm learning, where I'm relaxed, and I'm sitting there, and, they're, and they're literally I'm listening to that person talking, like, right, let's get on with this, and I'm like, well, I don't want to get on with that. I'm relaxed. You do literally have to sit up to do what he's asking you to, mm-hmm. and I don't always want to. And I can imagine if you're transitioning from one thing where you're quite relaxed, you're coming towards the end, but now you've got to. Put all that stuff we've been doing in a box back in the head. And, well, we're going to open up a new box now and start on this, which takes cognitive ability to move on to something new. You've got to be ready. Absolutely. Otherwise, you'll be dragging your feet and not be getting involved. You're not ready for it because you're still lying on the sofa, kicking back like I would be doing. Mm-hmm. I think it's also, <laughs> if I watch children really struggle with transitioning, oftentimes it's, I, I, in my interpretation of it would be, sometimes is that they're stuck they're stuck they, they're, they're comfortable where they are and change is difficult and we know that yeah. autistic children autistic people can struggle with change perhaps that's me <laughs> <laughs> perhaps that's the thing i sit there going yeah that makes a lot of sense but my wife my wife is one of those people who and that's the thing is we'll be lying there on the sofa watching tv and she'll hear the click or the beep of the washing machine finish She'll jump up and go. And I'm like, there'll be adverts in 15 minutes. I'll do it then. And the whole way she just, she hears something will jump up and respond. She is ready to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'll get to it soon. Wow. There you go. (laughs) But yeah, I definitely don't like sitting forward. (laughs) Interesting. I'm all, as I said, I'm always learning on this podcast. So I think the other thing that just popped into my head that I think is useful, that yoga can be useful for, is motor planning and motor coordination, which I think can be quite a challenging piece for a number of autistic children. 
Okay, so motor coordination, I'm there with that. What is motor planning? It's being able to know what, what, what's, you know, it, it's learning how to do things in sequence. Ah, so like if you, like do, learning how to do a forward roll. Could be. That sort of thing. So I, you're going to do this and they go, how? Mm-hmm. And it's the planning, the steps you're going to go through to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think that motor planning, motor coordination can be, it, it's not for every person or every child with autism, but certainly I've seen it in a lot of autistic children is that difficulty in, in that processing of like, am I supposed to, how do I do this? Yes. You know? So again, when you create simple sequences of movement, you can start to build those pathways in the brain that allow motor planning, motor coordination, balance between left and right, which brings both regulation and calm because it balances the right, right and left hemispheres of the brain. So I think that, there's an, that then will also help with attending, learning, all the things that they, they're, they're being asked to do in school, right? Yeah. So I think that there's a number of different reasons why yoga works. So I'm looking through, you give me a list of bullet points. I'm going tick, 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 tick. One of those we haven't mentioned is compassionate listening. <laughs> so compassionate listening for me, it, it's, it's what we were talking a little bit about in the other one, which is about the biggest gift you can give anybody is your full presence. And when you're fully present with somebody, you're listening. And you're not necessarily listening to what they're saying, but you're able to read the energy. You're able to listen beyond the language. Because remember, autistic children don't always have language, number one. And number two is sometimes their language is limited in terms of what they're really trying to express. So it's, it's that ability to listen beyond and connect really deeply with them. Yeah, so it's that it's not listening to them read while you're cooking dinner. No, you are literally listening to them, and all your focus is on what they're saying and what they're meaning. That what is it they're really trying to say? Yeah, and it might be that you have children who are autistic who are pre-verbal, so you might not even have verbal language. So you know, yeah. it, it's also listening to. So for me, it's also if I watch how a child moves, for example, right? And there's a child that literally goes into corners, right? What that tells me is is that they need to be kind of squeezed and hugged and held because they're looking for that feedback in in their body system. It might be that the child is tapping a certain rhythm on the wall and that rhythm, if you were to tap that rhythm, for example, on the floor, because you're listening, you, you might be able to get their attention because then you can bring them into your world because you've gone into theirs. Yes. All right. So that's, so I think there's so many different ways that compassionate listening can arise because sometimes we have to go into their world and meet them in order to bring them to us. And that's the thing is there are times where I've been listening to my daughters where I'm sat on the bed next to them. I'm not looking at them. I'm listening. But as you said, 80% 80% of our language is, non, is non-verbal. So when I'm not actually facing my daughter, I'm not looking at her, there could be a lot of cues that I'm missing and things like that. And that non-verbal, again, it's the same thing. It is, although we're listening with our eyes. Mm-hmm. We're looking, but we're hearing the communication. Mm-hmm. You can listen with your heart as well. Yeah. 
So you can listen with your eyes, you can listen with your hands, you can listen with your heart. Definitely. So you've worked with a huge range of autistic pupils. It's not a case of it works for these, it doesn't work for those. It, it's very, it works for lots, but it's an individual by individual basis, would you say? So it's not a guarantee. I think that sometimes the more impacted autistic children are the hardest to reach because they are more disconnected. They're more living in their own world. And we as the adults have to work harder to try and find pathways to meet them. But I believe that there is a key to every child. So it's really a question of just listening deeply enough to finding how do I meet you? Yeah. And how do I then identify supporting your needs? I, I like the idea of like, that yoga is the mind and body together. And often with these sensory overload and sensory balance, all things like that, it is that disconnection between the body and the emotion and the mind mm-hmm. that you are trying to bring together right. and help them see they are interconnected. They do have an impact on each other and they can also as well as being impacted, there is some level of control and that yoga can bring all of that. That that makes a lot of sense to me. So yoga actually means unity. Always learning. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're we're doing. You're uniting the body, mind, spirit, heart, you know, the whole shebang. All the elements that make us a being, a human being, which are made up of lots of us, because we're not just a body and we're not just a mind. We're all of it, aren't we? Yeah. So when you bring it all together and you bring it into balance, then actually you're in the optimum state to thrive for who you are. Yes. Okay, so final question around yoga for today. (laughs) How can you get someone who's not buying into yoga, how, how can you convince them to give it a try? How can you convince them it will make a difference? Well, it depends who it is. So if I'm if I'm trying to persuade a school that that's what they need to do, then it might be that it's very hard. If you've got a management in a school that don't buy into it, it's really hard. I, I was thinking more on the more of an individual. There's a key to everybody. There's a key to every child. So I can sit there and just do a little bit of practice and 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 have them feel what peace might feel like, and not say nothing. I can just say, just let's give it a try. If you don't like it, you don't like it. There's the door. You can always leave. And I've never had a child leave, by the way. No, but if you give them the choice, it's given them that control yeah. that they can always do yeah. it if they want to. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've often said in those situations, the door's over there. You can give it a try. Let's see what happens. Take the pressure off. Take the pressure off. Because I think that also there's so much demand on these children that is so difficult. And so you don't want to make yoga another demand. You want to make it something that they're willing to try. Yeah. And then they can make a choice. Yeah. Because I suppose, yeah. Because if you've got someone who's not in a great place and you go, well, let's give yoga a go. It, oh, it's, it's another thing. That I, and that's thing, it's that perception of what yoga is or what they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And you've got to get them to take a step to give it a go to so they can see how it makes them feel. Absolutely. I suppose with an organization, it's you if you if you can get one person convinced. 
Give it a try. Give it a try. You know, when we've had, because we, we have a lot of educators that come on our training courses, and sometimes there's just one teacher from a school that comes, and sometimes there's a few, but one teacher goes back. And, plant, and and people notice that they're that the teachers in a different state, and that their their classroom is in a different state. People want to know why. How did you do that? And that's what yeah. happens. So it's like planting the seeds, isn't it? I've I found that there's a couple of schools where they want to change something. What they've done is they've got a lot of, couple of people who are really on board with it to take it on first, yeah. so they can then demonstrate to others either just by people going oh hang on what's going on or actually coming back later on and go right this is what we've changed these are the benefits and really focus on how it may have impacted certain pupils mm-hmm. yeah I, I always think getting a couple of people on board often is easier than the whole organization oh yeah and with many things yeah, yeah, yeah. and then sometimes we, we you know we're, we're also getting um heads of schools training with us that's brilliant. It's amazing. I love it when that happens. I just love it because then you've got the buy-in. Yeah. Then you get the buy-in. The uh, thing is, you, I can imagine the Senko might come along or a TA as in, oh, yeah, we'll tick the box. We'll do yoga in schools. But when you've got the head of school coming, that is, I've got the buy-in. Exactly. Exactly. That is brilliant. We love that. <laughs> Excellent. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. You are welcome. You've given me a couple of links again. So I've got autism um, yoga in schools. I've got the Mind Institute Yoga Stress Anxiety Children Autism. And I've got another one, which is NIH.gov. Yeah, that's a research organization. National Library of Medicine. There you go. That's seriously academic, that one. <laughs> I'll stay away from that document then. <laughs> Too much reading. So I'll put those links in the show notes that you've shared along with Jyoti's contact details. And you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter at We Are The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, and on Instagram, The Sendcast. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share the podcast with others or let us know what you think. Okay, please do share us. And as always, I'm going to talk about B squared. So if you are struggling to show progress, if your process assessment it just takes too long, too complicated, come and have a look at B squared and we will show you how we can help you show small steps of progress. We have a range of assessment products for various levels of ability, various ages. If you're a school in England and still confused by the engagement model or the pre-key stage standards, please get in contact. I'll make things a lot clearer. And you can also find out about our online training, our conferences, read our blog, or watch any of our webinars around assessment data and progress. It is all on the B Squared website. You'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone.